0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org
1: students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. Welcome
0: to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the final episode in our series, MGM Stories. Over the last 14 weeks, we've tried to give you a picture of what made MGM the center of the universe that was the classical Hollywood studio era— We've talked about the experiences of a number of stars under contract to the studio, beginning in the silent era with the likes of Marion Davies, Buster Keaton, and John Gilbert, and going all the way up to 1960, when Elizabeth Taylor's exit from the studio and her signing of the first $1 million single film contract helped to shut the door on the glory days of the studio system once and for all. We've talked about scandals involving gay stars, drunk stars, child stars, frequently married stars, and we've talked about how MGM employed men like Eddie Mannix to make these scandals go away. We've also talked about how stars like Lana Turner fared with their scandals once MGM was no longer around to protect them and give them a game plan. But we started talking about the relationship and professional collaborations and conflicts Between mogul Louis B. Mayer and boy genius Irving Thalberg. And that's where we're going to begin today's final chapter in this story. At the end of the first episode of this season, Thalberg died, and the prevailing feeling around Hollywood was that MGM was headed for a fall. No one believed that Louis B. Mayer could keep up both the quantity and the quality of films that the studio had been known for, all on his own. No one, that is, except for Louis B. Mayer, who felt liberated by his surrogate son-turned-rival's death and who was determined to prove the skeptics and the haters wrong. We discussed part of Mayer and MGM's following decade in our episode on David O. Selznick and Gone with the Wind. So today we're going to rejoin the MGM patriarch at the beginning of the 1940s and trace his fate and that of his studio through Mayer's death in 1957. Over those two decades, MGM movies got bigger, as the studio distinguished itself as the leading producer of movie musicals. Mayer found his attention divided, thanks to a midlife crisis and ensuing events in his personal life. And a new, would-be protege-turned-nemesis entered Mayer's life, ultimately leading to the previously unthinkable. An mgm Without Louis B. Mayer. Join us, won't you, for the final chapter of MGM Stories. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep Over thirty-seven thousand companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with Netsuite. Backed by popular demand, Netsuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/remember. 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 Gone with the Wind was a hit like Hollywood had never seen before, and like has barely been seen since. And though Mayer's son-in-law, David O. Selznick, won the Oscar for it and took much of the credit for making it happen, thanks to a couple of deals that took place in the years after the film's initial release, precipitated by Selznick's never-ending need for spending money, it wasn't long before the rights to the film were held by MGM. This sucked for Selznick, but in a way... It just made sense. Of course the studio that all the other studios looked up to should own the movie that all other movies would be compared against for years to come. Such was MGM's status in the early 1940s. The trick would be to sustain it. After Thalberg's death, Mayer knew he had to prove that the MGM magic hadn't died with Thalberg, and so Mayer had ordered all MGM executives to be on the lookout for new talent, and to sign at will. His goal was to have a deeper bench of stars and behind-the-scenes geniuses than any other studio. A new power pyramid was created, with Mayer at the top overseeing six executives, each of whom oversaw producers who ran their own units. Some of these unit producers were merely capable managers, but a couple of them could be called auteurs in their own right. For our purposes today, the most important of these was Arthur Freed, the man who established MGM as a factory for musical extravaganzas. MGM had always made musicals. One of their biggest stars of the 1930s had been Jeanette MacDonald, who had been paired opposite Maurice Chevalier in operettas like One Hour with You. LB Mayer took a special interest in Jeanette MacDonald, maybe too special of an interest. But the studio's golden era of musicals began after The Wizard of Oz, when producer Arthur Freed asked Mayer for permission to build a vehicle around Judy Garland. Freed had been at MGM for a decade by that point, and was close enough to Mayer personally that they often ate breakfast together. But to others, Freed was a man of few words. Actress Leslie Caron said that his vocabulary consisted of four words. Terrific. Terrible. Yeah... And, nah. His office was full of French Impressionist paintings and overflowing ashtrays. He knew what he wanted, and he knew what he didn't want, and he made remarkable things happen without fuss. He discovered Sid Charisse, and he knew how to use her to transform her from a ballet dancer with no acting ambitions into one of the most striking screen presences of the 1950s. Fried gave Vincent Minnelli his first big break by assigning him to direct Cabin in the Sky— Freed also discovered Gene Kelly and cast him opposite Garland in the 1942 wartime musical Me and My Gal against the wishes of pretty much everyone else at the studio. When Freed told Mayer he was worried because no one else seemed to get Kelly, Mayer said,
2: How do you feel?
0: I love him, said Freed. Mayer responded,
2: Well then, don't listen to all those schmucks.
0: Because Mayer trusted Freed, Freed was able to protect his unit from the moralizing and stodgy formal tics that marked other MGM movies. The Freed unit musicals were innovative, wildly artistic, even sometimes sexy. But Freed and Mayer agreed on the core purpose of movies. To entertain. To divert a poor schmuck's attention away from his miserable life. This is show business, Freed once said. You need laughs. You need cheerfulness. That's the whole reason for show business in the first place. By 1944, musicals accounted for a quarter of all MGM releases. Freed up from having to personally oversee production, Mayer had time for other things. For most of the 1940s, he was the highest-paid man in America, partially because he was paid primarily in cash rather than an ownership share in his company— And he was starting to become the model for the celebrity CEO. He started appearing on gossip columnist Luella Parsons' radio show, enhancing his reputation as the perceived figurehead of the film industry. Speaking to his ticket buyers, Mayer gave credit to them for keeping MGM's Star Factory humming.
2: I don't discover stars, Luella. It's the public that pays its money, chooses, and makes the star.
0: This was good PR, if nothing else, boosting Mayer's image as the benevolent father figure. But inside the walls of MGM, everyone knew that the mogul took immense pride in his own ability to spot potential stars, and also the work that went on within the studio to polish rocks into diamonds. The
2: idea of a star being born is bushwa,
0: Mayer said.
2: A star is made, created carefully and cold-bloodedly built up from nothing, from nobody. All I ever looked for was a face. If someone looked good to me, I'd have him tested. If a person looked good on film, if he photographed well, we could do the rest. Age, beauty, talent, least of all talent, had nothing to do with it.
0: Mayer had so much free time that he started spending a lot of it at the track, Santa Anita or Hollywood Park, leaving the minute-to-minute management of the studio to executive Sam Katz. But Mayer barely gambled. He had virtually started a second career as an owner of racehorses and had built a $600,000 ranch in Calabasas to house them, which he later upgraded to the Mayer Stock Farm, built on over 500 acres south of Los Angeles at a personal expense of one million dollars. Horses became another way for Mayer to cultivate and literally breed stars. In 1945, his horses earned more in race prize money than any other single owner's horses in America. They also gave him a whole new library of stories to call for metaphors in order to teach his employees lessons. After one difficult director refused the scripts MGM tried to assign to him for a full year, Mayer told the director a story about a horse of his who had suddenly lost his will to race. One day, Mayer's horse trainer came to him and said, That horse has developed the biggest balls I've ever seen on any horse. When he's running, they bang so hard against him he has to stop. Then Mayer delivered the punchline and the threat.
2: So, my son... I gelded him. And he's winning races again.
0: Mayer's horses became a much-needed hobby and source of joy as his home life was falling apart. In 1933, his wife Margaret had a hysterectomy, which was followed by an untreatable depression, which Mayer may not have been related or exacerbated by the fact that Mayer lost all sexual interest in his wife after her operation— L.B. had been faithful to Margaret for decades, but now he started looking to satisfy his needs elsewhere. Mayer's daughter Irene characterized the decade after her mother's hysterectomy as a time of wandering for her father. She'd write, For ten years, he was neither married nor unmarried, had neither his freedom nor a home. Mayer, the conservative family values representative, started to be seen almost nightly at nightclubs. He loved dancing. He also loved being around beautiful young women. In her postmenopausal misery, Margaret had let herself go, not just in terms of her appearance. She had also disappeared to the sidelines as a hostess and social creature. Finally, in 1944, L.B. left Margaret. He'd soon thereafter proposed to 21-year-old dancer-actress Ann Miller, who turned him down to marry another man, a rejection which apparently crushed Mare. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is, nope, nope. Because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, By 1940, the year after Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, MGM's position as the number one studio in town seemed secure. They made more movies than anyone else, and they made more profit on each individual movie than anyone else. They had formulas that worked. Clark Gable's movies reliably made money, Joan Crawford's movies reliably made money, even the studio's cheaper movies, made with lesser stars in B genres, had a sheen to them that you wouldn't find in comparative films made by another studio. But slowly, things were beginning to change. Costume designer Adrian left the studio in 1941 after too many disputes with Mayer, such as one over a midriff-bearing dress he had designed for Joan Crawford to wear in the most fashionable film of the era, The Women. By this point, MGM production had been moved entirely within the confines of the lot, meaning no location shoots, nothing but interior sets and exteriors on the back lot. This meant that key real-life locations, like Grand Central Terminal in The Clock, were simply recreated on the studio lot, and because directors and writers had less power than producers and stars, they mostly accepted this and did as they were told. Director Clarence Brown didn't realize how confined he was at MGM until he was borrowed for a picture at Fox, where he was allowed to design action scenes and shoot them the way he wanted to, without having to fight or make special requests. In 1944, the same year Mayer left his wife, MGM released a movie which was both the epitome of an MGM production and also a bellwether of changes on the horizon. Meet Me in St. Louis was one of the more difficult freed unit productions. Its two female stars, Judy Garland and Margaret O'Brien, hadn't won to make it. Vincent Minnelli's fussy obsession with detail was anathema to the MGM house style of efficiency. And the movie had monopolized Freed's attention for a full year, reducing his year-to-year output from six films to one. But it made a ton of money, surely in part because it was so in tune with the time. It was a movie about a family trying to stay together in the home they love, banding together as cataclysmic change threatened to darken their doors. This was where America was as the third year of the country's participation in World War II was coming to a close. And no one knew it yet, but it was also where the studio system was in the middle of that decade. It had always been MGM's thing to make a lot of movies, 40 or 50 a year, spending only enough on each one to get across a feeling of quality. But big, expensive movies like Meet Me in St. Louis made big money during the war, and by 1945, MGM had cut their yearly roster down to just 27 films and had doubled the budget of each one. It was a period of plenty, but Mayer was still Mayer, and it was still possible to rub him the wrong way. In 1942, Mayer had assigned a young producer with big ideas named Dory Sherry to run MGM's B-Picture Unit. Sherry lasted two years, and was ousted after trying to push through a number of projects that didn't fit with Mayer's sensibilities, including a western about fascism, which Sherry was writing with Sinclair Lewis— whose satirical novel about fascism in America, It Can't Happen Here, had been on track to be adapted at MGM in 1936, until Will Hayes advised Mayer that the film would antagonize Nazi Germany. This was not an aberration. MGM continued releasing movies in Hitler's Germany for as long as they could, and according to Joe Mankiewicz, they would routinely erase the credits of workers with Jewish-sounding names on the prints they sent there. After he left MGM, Sherry then went to work for David O. Selznick, who he'd credit as a mentor, much to Selznick's displeasure. MGM's B unit fell to the wayside not long after Sherry's departure. By the end of 1947, the average MGM film cost $2.28 million to make, and they were only making 20 films a year. For comparison. The original budget of Gone with the Wind was only $2.4 million, although of course that went up. But that was always supposed to be an extraordinary picture, not an average production. The things that had once ensured profitability were now proving to be a drain on the overall bottom line. Arthur Freed's unit was valuable, even though it occasionally turned out expensive disasters like Vincent Minnelli's The Pirate, but it was also a personal favorite of Mayor's, and so money spent on musicals became no object. The Judy Garland and Fred Astaire musical Easter Parade would become an innovative classic, but it was still hard to swallow the $600,000 that Irving Berlin demanded for the rights to use 16 of his songs in the film. Still, no individual unit was as expensive as MGM's elaborate bureaucracy itself. No other studio employed as many producers, all of whom were entitled to large salaries and bonuses. And for the first time, MGM reported an operating loss for the 12-month period beginning in the fall of 1947. That same year, L.B. finally settled his divorce after three years of separation. Margaret Mayer got a $3.25 million settlement, their house in Santa Monica, plus assorted other assets— amounting to the largest divorce settlement to that point in American history. A year later, L.B. married Lorena Danker, a 41-year-old single mother who had been a chorus girl in several Busby Berkeley musicals of the 1930s. 1947 was also the year that the film industry as a whole became embroiled in the collective insanity that was the communist witch hunts led by Congress. We will detail the activities of the House Un-American Activities Committee in a future season, but Dalton Trumbo and Lester Cole, two of the ten screenwriters who were cited for contempt of Congress for refusing to answer questions about their or their associates' current or former political allegiances, were under contract to MGM. A lifelong conservative, Mayer nonetheless largely didn't care what his employees did in their off hours— He was himself embarrassed about his recent divorce and certainly didn't feel like he was in a position to throw stones. Maybe that's why Mayer met with Lester Cole, to try to convince him to break solidarity with the rest of the Hollywood Ten and to answer questions and name names. When Cole told Mayer that he thought the Hollywood Ten were in the right legally to refuse to answer questions, Mayer lost his cool.
2: I don't give a shit about the law.
0: Mayor said, and continued on into an impassioned speech that only he could give.
2: Break with them. Stick with us. With me. Doe means nothing. We'll tear up the contract. Double your salary. You name it, you can have it. Just make the break. I know about communism. I know what happens to men like that. Take that communist Roosevelt. A hero. The man of the people. And what happened five minutes after they shoveled the dirt on his grave? The people pissed on it. That's what you want, Lester? Be with us. Be smart. You got kids. Think of them.
0: This speech wasn't persuasive to Lester Cole, but it's pretty interesting to me, insofar as that it combines so much of what made Louis B. Mayer, Louis B. Mayer. There's no belief system that could possibly trump the will of the paying audience, but now he's acknowledging that the audience is fickle, that they change as times change, and perhaps more frighteningly, that they make times change with their whims. So what lasts? Family, the one you're born into or choose through marriage, if you're lucky or smart or strong enough not to be led by selfish or foolish desires. With Mayer having left his own at-home family, it's almost touching to see him desperately try to keep his at-work family intact. A few months later, the Supreme Court ruled that movie studios could not own the movie theaters in which they exhibited their products. This would force chains like Lowe's to sell all of their very profitable movie theaters so that movie studios like MGM could stay in business. It would take several years before the monopolies would actually break up in practice, but now more pressure than ever was on moguls like Mayer to figure out how to make their studios profitable. But just as the public turned on Roosevelt, audiences were changing, as were directors. Other studios allowed directors to participate in planning the look of the film before shooting began, and to oversee the editing once the footage was in the can— MGM still thought so little of directors that their responsibilities were basically limited to showing up on the first day of shooting in order to talk to the actors. Stars were still king at MGM, but their stars were falling off, hopping to other studios and or getting older. The former queen of the lot Norma Shearer had been replaced by Greer Garson. Only two of the top ten box office stars of 1948, Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy, were the property of MGM. Gable, Crawford, and Garbo had once been the studio's most reliable moneymakers, but by 1950, Crawford and Garbo were long gone, and Gable was a very tired-looking 49 years old. Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland were heading into career lulls. Thank God for Elizabeth Taylor, just beginning to emerge as a box office bright light, and Esther Williams, whose underwater musicals, well, kept MGM afloat in the late 1940s. In fact, while everyone else at MGM was feeling a pinch, Arthur Freed's musical unit continued to operate without interference, which meant Freed was allowed to expend time and money as he saw fit in order to get the jobs done, particularly after the arrival of music and lyric team Betty Comden and Adolph Green, whose film The Barclays of Broadway reunited Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers a decade after their last collaboration, grossed $3 million and, most importantly, delighted Louis B. Mayer. Mayer had not been a fan of On the Town, the Broadway musical on which Comden and Green had made their reputations, but once the duo had made it into the moguls' good graces, an On the Town movie made its way into production at MGM, with Mayer even indulging directors Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan by allowing them to shoot for two weeks on location in New York City on the town made enough money to make that decision look adventurous, rather than stupid. Freed would continue on at the studio producing hits and masterpieces, like Singin' in the Rain and Gigi, and interesting box office failures like It's Always Fair Weather and Bells Are Ringing. Meanwhile, in an effort to cut costs, MGM fired a number of executive producers, so that power was consolidated in Mayer and his longtime right-and-left-hand hand men. Eddie Mannix, and Betty Thau. But there were still too many producers milling around, homogenizing the products, and Mayer refused to cut payroll. And he wouldn't nickel and dime budgets, either. An average MGM film still cost $2 million to make, which was the price of an extravaganza at other studios. Mayer really believed that you had to spend to get quality, and that quality would win out. But out in New York, where the money still came from, and thus where the power was still concentrated, Nick Skank thought MGM needed some fresh blood. There was a sense of nostalgia for the days of Irving Thalberg, when a young creative genius gave the studio its energy, even as less refined men like Mayer and Mannix were doing the less glamorous work of watching The Bottom Line. Skank started looking around at the crop of men who were younger than Mayer, but yet proven as producers of pedigree. By this point, David O'Selznick Selznick had made his last American film and was battling bankruptcy. Joe Mankiewicz was a possibility, but he didn't want the job. And then Selznick suggested to Mayer the idea to bring back Dory Sherry, who had been running production at RKO, until Howard Hughes bought that studio Refused to let Sherry make a war film he had been plotting called Battleground, and more or less thus forced man of principle Sherry into resigning. Sherry was interested in coming back to MGM, provided Mayer could promise him more power than he had had at RKO under Hughes. Sherry was earnest and socially conscious, and he wanted to pick material that meant something to him and to be able to see a film through to completion. Mayer met with Sherry and made it seem like they were on the same page. In fact, Mayer told Sherry that he was thinking of retiring soon. Sherry was offered the position of vice president of production under the direction of Louis B. Mayer. But Sherry knew, before he even took the job, that the only way for him to succeed at MGM would be to decimate the ranks of executives at the company who posed a threat to him. But Mayer didn't seem to see that his new hire would eventually want to usurp him. Shortly after Sherry's hiring, MGM acting coach Lillian Burns warned Mayer. Now you've done it, she said. You've ruined everything.
2: Why? What's wrong with Dory Sherry?
0: Said a baffled Mayor. Nothing's wrong with Dory Sherry, except that he only likes message pictures. No musicals, no comedies, no adventures. Just messages. They won't have a need for anybody around here. Even you. You'll see. In 1948, MGM lost $6.5 million. After Sherry had been on the job for a year, the studio showed a profit of $300,000. Not much, but progress— Mayer continued to be involved in many pictures, particularly those Sherry didn't know what to do with, such as musicals. The two men jointly presided over a conference in February 1949, organized to celebrate MGM's 25-year anniversary. Mayer gave a speech at the conference that included both a succinct and accurate summing up of his accomplishments and an inflated prediction of continued success.
2: When MGM was formed in 1924... We had six stars and 40 acres of land. Today, we have 31 modern sound stages, 60 stars, and five lots, covering 176 acres. The motion picture industry will go forward in the years to come, just as it has at this studio in the past 25 years. It is to entertainment what the game of baseball is to American sports. And I will remain head of this studio as long as Nick Skank remains head of the company.
0: Again, in vintage LB style, here Mayer managed to say so much about how he viewed his status, while also, in hindsight, sadly foreshadowing a future that he couldn't see at the time. Baseball would drift to the sidelines of American sports with the popularity of football and basketball, and television would come to occupy more of the American public's appetite for entertainment than anything else, at least until the internet came along. And as for Mayer's tenure in relation to Nick skanks, here's a metaphor. The day Mayer gave that speech, lunch was served, and dessert was chocolate ice cream molded into the shape of Leo the Lion— It was a hot day, and as the presentation dragged on, all of the lions melted before anyone could eat them. Dory Sherry's first signature success at MGM was Battleground, the 1949 William Wellman action film about the Battle of the Bulge, starring Van Johnson. Battleground fell in line with MGM's tradition of highly polished craftsmanship, while also incorporating more modern techniques to enhance realism. Sherry brought in 20 real life paratroopers who had actually participated in the real battle to train the stars and serve as extras. With Sherry personally overseeing production, Battleground was finished early and at $100,000 under budget. It grossed almost $5 million, making it MGM's biggest hit in five years. And suddenly, Mayer started to get worried. If it was impossible not to notice that it was Sherry's pet project that was turning MGM's fortunes around, it was equally apparent that Sherry was working on buttering up Nick Skank, who was already predisposed to take sides—anybody's side—against Mayer. In retaliation, Mayer started publicly bad-mouthing Sherry's style of social issue picture, telling The Hollywood Reporter that movies with the pretense of depicting real life— were often, quote, obscene. When Sherry had another hit with Gopher Broke, another Van Johnson war film, but this one about the heroism of Japanese American soldiers in World War II, Mayer sniffed.
2: I don't like Japs. I remember Pearl Harbor. Dory's making movies about the Japs. Last week, who went to see the picture? All the Japs. This week The bottom fell out of his box office.
0: Perhaps the ultimate sign of how much things had changed, and how quickly, occurred not on the MGM lot, but at Paramount, where Mayer attended an early screening of Sunset Boulevard in 1949. Mayer thought the film was disrespectful to the film industry, as Mayer himself was of the Norma Desmond generation and had been around at least as long as the waxworks it's easy to see how he could take personal offense. After the screening, Mayer stood outside the theater with Eddie Mannix and said,
2: This Billy Wilder bites the hand that feeds him. He should be tarred and feathered and run out of town.
0: Billy Wilder was standing right there, and when he heard what Mayer said, Wilder went right up to him and said, I am Mr. Wilder, and go fuck yourself. The number of people who had ever told Louis B. Mayer to go fuck himself to his face was probably countable on one hand. But no one could remember anyone ever daring to say such a thing to the mogul in front of a crowd. Mayer knew he was losing touch with the times, but he thought the problem was with the times.
2: Everyone wants to see this.
0: This. He'd fret, grabbing his crotch on the word this.
2: Men with dirty faces, women with messed up hair. Who wants to look at garbage? We're making moving pictures. They have to be beautiful. Every frame has to be beautiful.
0: Mayer's unhappiness was becoming more vocal and more public. He reached a boiling point during the production of Two Sherry Approved, John Huston films neither of which fit with Mayer's idea of what MGM was all about. Mayer hated noir and he thought dark crime films like The Asphalt Jungle were a pox on American society taking the youth by the hand and showing them how to destroy everything he valued. When that film became a huge hit Mayer seemed to go out of his way to interfere with Houston's next MGM project The Red Badge of Courage. In one meeting Mayer started haranguing Houston about the moral slippery slope he felt the movies were on.
2: Tell me, John, does your wife go to the bathroom? Does she pee, John? Does she sit on the toilet and take a crap? Yes, I suppose she does. Everybody does. You can't live very long if you don't. Does she lock the door, John, when she goes to the bathroom? Tell me, does she lock the door? Why does she lock the door, John? Why does she do that? Why doesn't she open the door and say, Come in, everybody. Come in. Look, I'm taking a pee. That's realism, John. So why doesn't she do that? I'll tell you why she doesn't, John. Because it's ugly. It's not pretty, it's not exciting, it's not glamorous to see a woman sitting on a toilet with her dress pulled up and her private parts naked, taking a pee or a crap. It's disgusting. It happens many times a day with every woman, but she doesn't want other people seeing her do it. So she locks the door. She keeps them out. That's what we do in our pictures. When something is ugly, we lock the door. We keep it out because we don't want our customers to look at things that are ugly and say, I don't want to see that.
0: Mayer earned a moral victory when Red Badge of Courage started test screening terribly, But when he started lobbying Nick Skank to show Sherry a lesson by putting the finished picture on the shelf and canceling its release, Mayer was essentially digging his own grave. In March 1951, Mayer accepted the Lifetime Achievement Oscar from the Academy, rarely a harbinger of a thriving career future. A week later, rumors that Mayer was either about to resign or was actively being pushed out by Skank and Sherry started to hit reputable publications like the New York Times and Variety. It was true that the studio had split into factions. It was true that Sherry was running much of day-to-day production. But in the last six months alone, Mayer had made some significant decisions. He approved an extra $500,000 for the budget for an American in Paris so that Vincent Minnelli could shoot his dream ballet. And he insisted that Debbie Reynolds be cast opposite Gene Kelly in Singin' in the Rain against Kelly's wishes. But by May 1951, the rumors had grown too loud, and Mayer was tired of feeling like a second-class citizen in his own studio. So he did the equivalent of sending a drunk text to an ex. Except Mayer didn't drink. Instead, he wrote an incredibly ill-advised letter to Nick Skank, demanding that the corporate executive choose. It was either Sherry or Mayer and Skank chose Sherry. Before leaving the lot, Mayer seethed to Sherry,
2: I know how you and Nick scheme to kick me out, you son of a bitch.
0: Even if that was true, there were a lot of reasons that a rational person could see for Sherry and Skank to want Mayer out. Not only were his tastes old-fashioned, but he couldn't seem to accurately see that the audience had shifted for good. He had never taken television seriously until it was too late. And the lack of clear definition as to where his job ended and Sherry's began was probably a recipe for disaster. Mayer probably couldn't have hung on much longer at MGM under the best of circumstances. But as it was, he left the studio with his name over the door after 27 years And in effect, the golden era of Hollywood that he had embodied for three decades started to drift away with him. Without Mayer, MGM became more cost-effective, but the movies suffered. Big aging stars were dropped or allowed to walk away. Sherry didn't understand sex or spectacle and the only stars who really embodied either to blossom under his watch were Grace Kelly and Liz Taylor, who he frequently wasted in attempts to resurrect the old-style MGM spectaculars, such as Rain Tree County. The musicals that had been such a bright spot when everything else wasn't working started to become less consistent, perhaps because Freed hated working for Sherry, and by the middle of the decade, the whole genre had fallen out of fashion. Mayer vowed to get back into production quickly, and he spent two years trying to develop a biblical picture in which he hoped Jennifer Jones, the new wife of his daughter's ex-husband, would star. But it never came to fruition. He held grudges against Skank and Sherry that did him no good. When his daughter Edie's husband, William Getz co-hosted a fundraiser for Adlai Stevenson with Sherry, Mayer disowned Edie, and never spoke to her again. In 1952, Mayer was hired as chairman of the board of Cinerama, the gimmicky widescreen film process. It was more of an honorary position than anything else, helping to add legitimacy to Cinerama so that they could borrow money from banks, and helping Mayer appear like he was still in the game. But he wasn't, not really. He was lonely and bitter He became more politically active, veering further to the right as if pushed by the specter of the liberal Sherry. In 1956, after the studio's fortunes had dwindled considerably, Skank fired Sherry. Skank himself was let go not long after. By the summer of 1957, a formal proposal was made to Mayer to come back and replace Skank as president of Lowe's Inc. And Mayer turned it down. He had leukemia, although he didn't know it. His doctor hadn't wanted to tell him how sick he was. By the end of the summer, Mayer was hospitalized at UCLA, and he never went home. In October, knowing he was dying, LB started asking for his daughter, Edie. Her sister, Irene mayer Selznick, called her and told her that she should come to the hospital. Edie reportedly sighed, "'What do you want, Irene?' A deathbed scene. On October 29th, 1957, Louis B. Mayer died. By some reports, these were his last words.
1: Nothing matters. Nothing matters. In
0: nineteen sixty-nine, MGM was bought by Kirk Kerkorian, who sold off most of the lots to real estate development and used the profits to finance the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas. Only a single lot remained, which changed hands between Kirkorian and a number of outside parties before Sony bought it in 2004. Thalberg still has his name on a building. So do Garbo, Gable, and Crawford. Louis B. Mayer, for no reason that I can think of, does not. But then again, neither do Dory Sherry or Nick Skank. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth and edited by Henry Malofsky. This was the final episode in our series, MGM Stories, and we're going to be taking a hiatus for a few weeks, and we'll be back at the end of January. So if you haven't subscribed to the show on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, now will be a great time to do so, so that you won't miss our first episode when we come back. With this season coming to a close, I'd like to take a minute to give special thanks to... All of the special guests who helped these voices from the dead come to life. Will Whedon, who played William Haynes. Dana Carvey, who played a very old Mickey Rooney looking back on the exploits of his youth. Steve Zissis, who played Spencer Tracy. Kelly Marcel, who played Katherine Hepburn. Adam Goldberg, who had a two-episode stint as David O. Selznick. Ryan Johnson, who reprised his role as John Houston. Uh, there's a whole John Houston episode of this podcast from last year, which you can find on iTunes. Larry Harold, who reprised his role as Orson Wells, Noah Segan, who played a sleazy MGM casting director, and of course, the great Craig Mazin, who played Louis B. Mayer in many, many episodes in this season. Craig has his own podcast called Script Notes, which he does with the screenwriter John August. You can find that at iTunes. And Craig is also a screenwriter of movies such as The Hangover 2 and 3 and Identity Thief and the upcoming sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman. So check those out, too. And if you're using the end of the year as a time to tell people about things that you liked in 2015 and you like this podcast, why not? Tell people about this podcast. You can ask them to subscribe on iTunes or wherever as well. While we're on hiatus, it would be a great time for you to catch up on our archive. This is our 70th episode, so there's quite a bit to listen to. Also, special thanks to those who have donated to the show over the past couple of months, including Christine Rowlands, Thomas Kern, Brooke Dermetko, Lori Frick, Philip Shahab, Daniel DeLay, Taylor Singer, Leslie Mills, Peter Leventhal, Michael Chartier, Natalie McKenzie, Catherine S. Maslin, Jessica McElfrish, Robert King, Kristen Woodward, Joseph Pudlow, Bruce Hill, Megan Tracy Benson, and Krista Lundquist. Thank you to all of you and everybody else who's donated in the past as well. And thank you to all of you who have listened to the show over the past year. And even longer than that, it's only through your support, uh, through your tweeting and your spreading the word and your subscribing on iTunes and other apps that we're able to do this show at all. So thanks so much and have a happy new year, happy holidays. And join us, won't you, in
2: 2016. Good night.
0: Stop chipping, I'm chipping
2: off the power Jesus, right. The system broken, the school's closed, the prison's open We ain't got nothing to lose, motherfucker, we rolling uh, rollin Hi, hi, here's Louie How are you doing, by the way? Enjoying the show? Direct me, maestro Tell me what you want. All right, let's see here. Oh, this one's so Jewish. Okay, <clears throat> get my Jew on. My old school Jew. <laughs> Boobs. I'm pretty sure that it's Dory Sherry, not Dory Scary. All right, and here's <laughs> the horse. Jesus Christ. What a dick. I love him, though. Hey, this guy okay uh, yeah. you know, the funny thing is I honestly believe that that's how these people talk today it's so mean like yeah god <laughs> what a freak I gotta do that one again I'm doing it again I don't know if I'm gonna do it differently I, I mean I'm just gonna do it again let's see how it goes Mickey Rooney you know the the thing about um, sorry <laughs> this is a little aside cause I'm talking to you Dolly Grips when you say, you know what, can you do like a real slow push in? They'll say, oh, you want the Mickey Rooney? And uh, yeah, because it's a little creep. <laughs> it's the stupidest joke, but they're still making fun of that dude. Okay. Well, let me know. <laughs> this, was, uh, this was a hell of a way to go out.